0: Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. I mean, I just, this is the second year in a row we've done this retreat and every time I leave so impacted, so marked, like I went to youth camp, like phenomenal. Well, we're, we're going to be in uh, a second, we're going to start in 2 Samuel 7 today. I'm just going to take a minute to get there, but if you want to open there. I'm just going to piggyback on what Steve was saying. Was that so good? I could have stayed there all day. That was amazing. Well, this week I was woken up out of a dead sleep by a loud knock on the door. And my first response is just instant anxiety. I've lost count of the amount of times this has happened to me now in my life but the first time I was, uh, I was 19, I had just turned 19 and I was uh, living in LA on a college campus and I was the only one on my whole dorm floor because I had come back early to play basketball and I was woken up out of a dead sleep to a knock on the door and Terror filled my body because I knew I'm the only one on this floor. And instantly a picture of a man with a mask and a gun in his hand just flew through my, my brain without even being awake enough to form thoughts about how irrational that is. And uh, my next thought was I heard as as clear as I've ever heard a human voice before, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And my whole spirit was just shaking. I didn't even know this was possible. I was at a very conservative beautiful Baptist college. Like, Is this the God or the devil? But it was straight out of the Bible. So I had got a point for God in my in my reasoning. And over the years, uh, it has happened to me repetitively. And, you know, it's been a while since a few nights ago, and we were in a random house in Alabama. <laughs> and so my first feeling again was terror. And, and then I thought, my second thought was, Dave and Tracy were right down the hall. I thought, maybe Dave is knocking on the door to invite Justin on a boat ride. <laughs> and it, was, it was the middle of the night. So my third thought was, "No, no, it can't, it can't be Dave knocking for a boat ride." <laughs> and so I, I just dive, I just dove the, these last several days back into the verse that has just become a rudder to my ship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door. I will come in and dine with you and you with me. And, you know, I've noticed a theme that when I'm on the cusps of a new season, when I'm on the cusps of something uncomfortable, I hear a knock at the door. And, you know, when I was looking into that verse in the Passion's Translation this week, um... Who loves the footnotes on the Passion Translation? I mean, what in the world? I mean, if they make my heart stand still. And he said, in Jesus' day, uh, a Jewish wedding invitation is when a bridegroom would go in the night with his father and he would bring a cup of wine and the price of a bride And they would go together and knock on the door of the one the bridegroom wanted to marry. And if she came to the door and flung it wide open, she was saying, yes, I will be your bride. And, you know, I'm just feeling the excitement of heaven that you are coming into an invitation at a whole new level to fling wide the door in this season if it feels exciting if it feels messy however it feels that the bridegroom has come with his father to remind us of the price to remind us of the wine and he's waiting with eager expectation for his people to fling wide the door with a resounding "yea." Yes, I will be your bride, and you know, like Justin mentioned, I'm 17 years in in being a bride, and you know the the type of bride that I want to constantly be growing into thinks thoughts like this. like It's not just on our wedding day that we say yes to our bridegroom, but that it's in every season, how can I give up more of who I am to benefit who you are? And I've made a decision with my whole life that I will be repulsed by the thought of building a life apart from you. That no matter what personal opportunities come my way, My life feels dumb without you at the center. (laughs) In every way. And, you know, the heart of a bride, it's not a sacrifice or a discipline to see beautiful people all throughout our story step into our life. And it's not discipline that says... No, 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 no. It's a fiery, passionate love that says, I can see beautiful people all around me and I've chosen to give myself to this one man for all of my days. And no matter how big the opportunities, no matter how beautiful the opportunities, the heart of a bride is overwhelmed with joy to say, I will build a life with you and you alone and you will have access to places in my heart that nobody else in all of my story will have access to. And, you know, the bride in Proverbs 31, one of my favorite verses in that passage, is she she smiles at her future. And, you know, I don't think she's smiling because she's absolutely confident that all of her dreams are going to come true. I don't think she's smiling because all of her expectations are definitely gonna be fulfilled. <laughs> you learn that in like two hours of marriage, you know? <laughs> I, I think she's smiling because she's absolutely confident he has dedicated himself to my future and come what may, my bridegroom will be there. And how Our perfect cannot fail. Intoxicating bridegroom, that our smile over our future is coming from this one thing. I know that I know that I know that he will be there. And our joy wells up because of our confidence in his faithfulness. And you know, the the bridegroom wants to take over every nook and cranny of our heart. And what I'm finding when I hear these knocks on the door is I didn't know there was a part that wasn't surrendered. You know, does anybody else feel shocked? Wow! I did not know I was working so hard to hang on to that. <laughs> and, you know, we are, we are remodeling our, our master bathroom right now. Which, what that really means is Justin is remodeling our math room, master bathroom with the help of Dan. Uh, but I just say we because it just feels so good. So, we are remodeling our master bath. And I was telling Justin the other day, I'm like, babe, this six year remodel feels like it just mimics whatever's going on in our soul. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I'm like, we had this dream. Really, from the beginning of our marriage, we're going to just buy a fixer-upper. We're going to buy a foreclosure. And we're just going to get a ton of sweat equity. We're going to invest in our future. We're going to fix it up, have our own touch to every wall, every nook and cranny. And we lived in California for so many years that we couldn't even get a tiny toe in the door of a fixer-upper. So we moved to Georgia. Georgia. And houses are like a dollar here compared to what they are in California. So we could finally buy one because we had a and, dollar. And so we bought a legitimate foreclosure that cockroaches had literally taken over and decided they would just make an eternal dwelling place in the house. And so one day... I'm scraping popcorn ceiling off the ceiling, and I'm snapping at Justin, who's doing 80% of the work, and I do 20. But I talk like I'm doing 80%, and he's doing 20. And I, I, I hear this quiet whisper of the Holy Spirit, like, how, how are you enjoying living your dream? <laughs> and, much more magical 10 years ago. And how does Joanna Gaines get this done in 30 minutes? Like, you you turn on an episode, you have a snack, and then it's like, whoa! It used to look like this, and now it looks like that! That is my destiny! And then we would get up, and our house looked the exact same. You know? (laughs) So we're six years in and I have been growing into the type of person who can live with joy inside of my dreams. I remember a couple years ago, I remember the Holy Spirit telling me, you know, you never need to be concerned if what I've promised over your future will actually come to pass. Don't, don't waste your energy wondering, will this really happen? Instead, you need to exert your energy on becoming bigger than a grasshopper on your insides so that when you get inside of your land, you don't find yourself grumbling and complaining and despising the very thing you used to daydream about. And that's what Psalm says. It says the people of God got inside the borders of their promised land and they grumbled Justin. No one sees it. It's like the most private places of my heart. And, you know, that bathroom has a leak out of everything that runs water. <laughs> so, when, you don't. Know, when, when there's like leaks, you can't just like pick a new faucet fixture, you know? like We, meaning they, had to rip out <laughs> The entire bathroom. So you know, there's a toilet in the front yard where very private things have happened on that toilet. No, no one else is in the room when I'm sitting on that toilet. But oh, hi, welcome to the Stockmans. There's our master bath toilet. You know, <laughs> it's like welcome to the gospel. You chose to live inside out without shame. <laughs> and this is the thing about uh, rooms being gutted is there's nothing in there that looks pretty. And, you know, where the shower used to be, now the storage is exposed. So, like, the lack of organization is just sitting there. You know, things that you just stuff in there that you don't want to deal with. And no no heat is circulating in that room, so it's just a weird, sweaty swamp when you walk in. and And, you know, when we talk about being born again in the kingdom. We're not talking about Jesus putting a patch on your old man. We're talking about a process of everything that you used to function in as normal being uprooted and moved to the front yard as a memorial of how you used to be. (laughs) It's not, he doesn't just go up some paint on the wall you're actually a brand new creation and you know six years into the remodel this amazing thing starts to happen where you just let go of the expectation that this is going to get done in an episode of (laughs) fixer-upper that just causes so much anxiety when we start to, to try to get wrapped up in when will this be over when is this going to be done? When is when am I going to be through this process? When is this going to not be so messy? When is this going to start to look prettier? And when we start to put the pressure of time inside of our process, it doesn't squeeze out anything that resembles Jesus. <laughs> Cuz listen to him, one day is like 10,000. <laughs> So so you just got to let it go because what he thinks of as suddenly is wildly different than what we think of as suddenly. And he is better than we are. So it takes humility to let go of time. You know, I remember being young in the thick of a super painful process and the father asked me, will you give me time? And I remember I wrote it on a note card and I stuck it in my back pocket and I would pull it out whenever I felt overwhelmed by how long I had felt stuck. When I felt overwhelmed for how long I had felt in pain or tormented. And you know, when we offer up to Jesus our time, when we offer up to Jesus our expectations of the timeline of our life, It is our spiritual act of worship because we're saying, I trust a God that's bigger than me. I trust the nature of a faithful father that I I have learned that he does not lie. And it's always better if I wait for his way. And, you know, when you've walked through process, this wild thing happens where you can walk into a gutted bathroom and a genuine smile comes on your face because you are no you know what comes on the other side of everything being gutted out of a place in your soul you know oh man when he is reducing me down to the bare bones i know he is undoing things that never should have been there i know he's ripping out leaks and he's not just going to give me a patch or a quick fix you know you know there's some things where you just don't want to hear, I cut corners and, and went as fast as I could. You know, when my granny, I remember sitting in the waiting room, she had heart surgery, and the whole family was just on pins and needles in the, heart, in the, in the waiting room. And I remember the doctor coming out, you don't want to hear a heart, a heart surgeon say, listen, I cut as many corners as I could on your granny's heart so I could get, there, get her out of there as quick as possible. No, no, like when you're in the middle of heart surgery, take your time. Make sure you inspect everything. If we're going through all this trouble, make sure you've looked under every lid. Make sure you've checked every leaky faucet. Because I want to know that I know that you've taken all the time and care that was in your heart to build who I am. And you can go into rooms. this room is useless. (laughs) This room is not benefiting anybody on planet earth. And you can look at the reality of the situation and you can actually smile at your future because you know what Jesus does when we are yielded enough to let him gut up places in our soul, to let him uproot. And you know, all of us are learning to release our leaky faucets you know, And this is the thing about broken buckets in your soul, that until you actually trade in the old, you, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. And until you actually acknowledge, hey, this part of my life is not working. It, it is raining in the living room. I don't think that is how this works. <laughs> And you actually yield the broken places in your soul and say, I need new life here. No matter how much is poured in, it will never be enough. So, you know, if you have a a hole from legitimate rejection in your life, from the trauma of rejection, and you are no longer living in a toxic environment that, You've actually been planted in a brand new season. But no matter how much love and affirmation all the people around you pour in, all you can see is rejection you got to invite him into the master bathroom. <laughs> and you got to say, I need a new bucket. This one isn't working. I, I want to I wanna live exposed. I want to live open, wide, so that every broken thing that the gospel came to fix can receive an upgrade. And we can't skip the step of feeling uncomfortable and awkward, because this is how I used to operate as we wait for an upgrade in a brand new identity. There's just no skipping the middle part. And you know, recently I, I heard the father say to me, you know, you, your fear is only rational if you think like an abused person. And you're seeing all sorts of fear because you're thinking like an abused person. And as soon as you allow me to heal the broken bucket from that place of trauma in your life, you will start seeing courage like a brand new creation. And if you continue to perpetuate that kind of thinking, you will unconsciously train your daughters to think like an abused person. And they've never been abused. And if you pass on your leaky faucet of rejection, you will unconsciously train your children to see rejection everywhere they go. And if you don't trade in your poverty-stricken, broken bucket, you will teach your children to see lack everywhere they go in life. And, you know, the enemy is constantly shouting over your life, about, about your past, you are poor. Who, who do you think is shouting over your life, you are poor? <laughs> it's not the wealth of heaven. It's not the person of Jesus. And when we perpetuate that type of thinking and, and not fling wide the door when he starts knocking in the areas of our life that are harboring poverty, that are are harboring wounds from our past. And we step into the messy space and we say, yes, I will be your bride here. I, I didn't know you wanted me here, but I hear your invitation and I say here. Because no one can teach you the truth of your identity but God himself. Your history can't tell you who you are. The people around you can't tell you who you are. And if we don't have in the deepest parts of our soul, I went through the process of becoming a brand new creation. We'll we'll just constantly be begging for identity in every new season, in every new circumstance. Tell me who I am. Tell me who I am. And, you know, when David, David, I love this passage in 2 Samuel 7 that I want to look at today. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in this passage. And, you know, David at the very beginning of the chapter is experiencing rest on all sides. The Lord had given him rest from every enemy. It says in verse 1, And as he was in that place of rest, the king, King David, told the prophet, look, I dwell in a house of cedar, but God is dwelling in a tent. And in a place of rest, this dream welled up in his heart. I want to build a house for God. And, you know, it is the intention of God That in your places of rest, dreams would well up. And in the Old Testament, the promise was for external rest from all of their very external enemies. And in the New Testament, the promise is for internal rest. That you wouldn't live with the wrestle of anxiety. That you wouldn't live with the wrestle of poverty, with all of the wrestle that broken buckets in our soul cause inside of us. And Jesus, Jesus came to win us a rest. That no matter the trial, no matter the fire, that we would live from the inside out. And when we tap into those places of rest that the gospel won, that is when the truest version of who we are comes to the scene. Because we're no longer defending what's ours. We're living in the fruit of what's ours. And so the prophet tells David, just go and do whatever's in your heart. And and then that night, the prophet got a word for for David and you can hear the heart of God like blessed that this welled up in David's heart that he wanted to build him a house and he says um, in verse 8 this is, this is the verse I love now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David thus says the Lord of hosts I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And, you know, this, this verse rattles around in my spirit often. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. And, you know, if we, if we want to step into a new story with the the living God. We have to be living present in our current story. Faith is not escaping our current story. The Lord came and took David from the pasture, from following sheep. And you know, culturally, the people with sheep were the most insignificant people. And we know how the story goes. When Samuel comes to anoint the king, they didn't even invite David in the house as one of the brothers. And so we know that that there is rejection in his story. That there, there is a lot going on when the father says, I took you from the pasture that we don't even get to know about. But we have enough clues in the Bible to know it wasn't all roses for David. And, you know, wherever you're at in any season of your life right now, it's so empowering to identify where is my pasture. Because none of us fell in love with God on a stage. None of us fell in love with God on a platform. None of us fell in love with God for the first time in the height of feeling most fully alive. We fell in love with God and then we became so fully alive. And you know, staying close to those tender places in our heart where it's just me and you up here in the master bathroom and I can sing songs when my life is completely gutted Or not, I I gave a no to any other circumstance in my life telling me who I am, and you know the father goes on and and just gives David this beautiful covenant. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I'm going to appoint a place for my for my people, and they will not be disturbed anymore. And jump down to verse eleven. The Lord says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that I'm going to build you a house. Uh, And out of David's heart wells up, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God responds, no, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord is responding with, I see your love. And, you know, he says, and when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up, your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And, but, and my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then in verse 18, it says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? And, you know, this is the one place where it is appropriate to say, who am I? In in the absolute outpouring of the intention of heaven. In the absolute outpouring of heaven's prophetic vision for your life. It is completely appropriate to read a promise in scripture that you are my chosen people out of Ephesians. You are my royal priesthood. No longer do I call you servants. I'm calling you friends. It's appropriate to sit down in the middle of that and say... Who am I? Who am I? And allow the magnitude of the promise of God over your life to overwhelm every hole inside of your soul, to overwhelm every part of your history that would want to say it's not true. And, you know, I just want to fast forward to the end of David's life. And at the very end of the last story in 2 Samuel, Uh, David decides to count his people. A few weeks ago, I I felt the Lord bring me to this passage, and I've just been meditating on it. We're going to look at it in 1 Chronicles 21, because I feel like it gives more details. But it says in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David. To number Israel, so David said to Joab, the commanders of the army, "Go number Israel." And you know, I had to look into why this was a bad thing, because David uh, was going to send out his people to go number every single man in his district. And you know, I had to look at really smart theologians, okay, because they they give their lives to answering questions that we all have. And in Exodus 30, 12, it says, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. So, David, David Guzik, which is one of my favorite theologians, this is his thoughts on it. He says, the principle of Exodus 30, 12 speaks to God's ownership of his people. In the thinking of these ancient cultures, a man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. Israel didn't belong to David. Israel belonged to God. It was up to the Lord to command accounting. And if David counted, he should only do it At God's command and receiving ransom money to atone for the counting. And you know, as you look at Joab's response, you see the heart of a good friend because he says, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. He's saying, Listen, I want increase for you on every side. And your best friends are the ones that step up to your life and say, Hey, I want you to increase. How can you get bigger and bigger Heart is grieved, and he he's, has this sensitive conscience to the Lord. And in verse 8, he says, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And you know, David, in the end of end of his life, we gotta realize there's only one perfect person in scripture. (laughs) Even like King David, he's like one of my deepest heroes. And he still was waiting on the fulfillment of a savior because the prophet comes back to David and say, listen, God's offering you three punishments to atone for what you've done. And the first one is that there's going to be a famine for seven years in the land. The second one is you'll be three years out to war. And the third one is an angel will cause a plague across your land for three days. And, you know, sometimes we can hit these places of scripture and just brush over them. Because it's so hard to wrap our head around, did the God of the Old Testament switch into a different God and the God of the New Testament? But listen, if we don't take time to look at the consequence of sin, if we don't take time to look at what the severity of sin did to the friend of God, to the man after the heart of God, to the man who moved us forward like none other in the Old Testament. If we can't actually look at the severity of what his choices did to his intimacy with a holy God, then we will never be able to step up to the cross and feel the For three years, and it wouldn't have touched King David. His soldiers would have would have reaped the punishment of his choice. And, and the third one, you know, he's he tells the prophet, I'm super distressed, but I would rather fall into the hands of God than to fall into the hands of man. So I choose option three. Let the pestilence come into the land. And and we see the heart of a tender father who owned his failure, who owned his poor choice and said, let me be the one that feels the weight of what I have done. And we see the humility of his care over his people and true royalty. It is I live to benefit the people under my influence. I live to make their life better. It's, he's manifesting what King Jesus came to earth to do, not to be served, but to serve. And so this pestilence comes over the land and 70,000 people die. And David cries out to God saying, lift your hand. And the prophet comes back to David And says in verse 18, the angel of the Lord commanded to David to go and build an altar and sacrifice on the threshing floor of Ornan. And so David took the prophet's word and went up to the threshing floor of Ornan and was going to make a sacrifice. And now in verse 20, now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. So David's coming up the hill and apparently there's an angel coming with him. And Ornan saw it and his sons ran and left because they were so terrified. So uh, apparently Ornan maybe took Blake's seeing in the spirit class because he saw it. And Ornan paid homage to David and and David says, hey, I want to buy this land from you because I need to sacrifice. This is where one of our most favorite verses comes out because Ornan is so generous and says, just take it, have it all. I'll give you everything you need to give a sacrifice to the Lord. And King David in verse 24 says, no. But I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offering that costs me nothing. And he paid full, full price, and a fire came down from heaven and burnt up the offering. And it made David aware that this is where my son will build the temple. It said in verse 22, here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And if you look down at the end of his life, David says, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity and set up everything necessary that in that space Solomon would be the one to provide the promise, the faithfulness of God. And David made sure he was set up for success. And, you know, the most... (laughs) stunning part of this story to me is David took a failure and turned it in to a place of worship for generations to come. He he took a personal failure, a place of great shame, the cause of 70,000 men dying. And he made a sacrifice and said, how? To the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.